Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Lynn Spiegel. And it's a great pleasure to be with Lynn, an old friend, old in the sense that we've known one another a long time, and someone <laughs> whose work I've admired from even before we met. So, Lynn, if I can start by asking you, what's happening for you now? What are you thinking about? What's dynamizing you? What's preoccupying you? Whatever it might be, right? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, first of all, and it's great to see you. Um, I'm moving from my last project, which took really long, so it's kind of a transitional moment for me in terms of research, um, to several other things. And one of them is back to issues about home and domesticity, but in terms of digital media. And um, so I'm sort of interested in writing about a history of how we got to kind of smart environments and smart domesticity. So I've, I've been kind of thinking a lot about that and the ways in which home has become really precarious for us, not just for the unhomed, although that's much more important than us lucky people with homes, but home as a concept, because I think that um, with all of these devices, you know, um, we basically are always kind of on the verge of being locked out of our homes. You know, um, we need passwords. We need, you know, we're forgetting our passwords. We need, you know, we're being tracked and we know it. And that's true for the homed and the unhomed in different ways. So I'm interested in what I calling this idea of telehospitality, um, that borrows liberally from Derrida's notion of, of hospitality, you know, uh, which was about nationalism and the rights of citizens. But he looked at it through classical texts. And, um, but he does kind of talk about, you know, the then in 1996 new media of email and surveillance culture and how that, yeah. So I'm kind of like extending that to think about how computers historically created spaces that made us feel welcome and comfortable while also tracking us and surveying us. So, yeah, I'm interested in kind of intervening in that question of surveillance studies, but from the end of why do we like it? You know, how did we come to want this? You know, why is it pleasurable? Why is it? Yeah. And I guess you're casting a skeptical eye on the idea of the home as a refuge. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> Is that, sorry, that's what yeah, I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, totally, because it starts out, you know, arguing that the home's become precarious. It's no longer the universal womb or whatever that Bachelot and everybody talked about in the 19th century, right? At least in terms of how it's represented, right. you know. Um, and now it's much more a precarious place where you don't really have sovereignty over it. Um, and... I don't, you know, I don't have a political angle on that yet because I think about it in relation to people that are unhomed, um, who are marginalized digitally as well, right? So yeah. I'm interested in the way that this has become something that's now diffused to even the upper classes who buy these, you know, devices. And I guess public libraries have become increasingly important places of shelter in yeah. these societies of great inequality and also essential because there are lots of jobs and also home living opportunities that can only be sought online right yeah no it's right and home in a broad sense i think you're absolutely right like 
actually what one of the things I've been writing about is hotels, not just homes, but home in the public sense too, of the feeling of being at home. And a library is a great, you know, is a refuge also, you're right. Um, and hopefully we'll remain that way since, you know, there's so much kind of political burning of books and closing of libraries too. And so the name of digital and the name of, well, you can get that online. You don't need this place. Does this ring true for you in terms of your earlier histories of domestic technologies to think of this also in terms of the sort of raw deal that unpaid female labor was sold after the war with so-called labor saving devices? Yeah, I mean, and that was true even, you know, back in the earlier um, 20th century, right? The um, whole idea of more work from other Ruth Cameron Schwartz phrase, right? That, you know, you get sold washing machines and, you know, refrigerators on the basis, you know, ads showing women playing tennis and having a great old time, right? But actually their domestic labor just got shifted to childcare and other kinds of things that women were made to feel guilty and responsible about, right? So, and it was the, with, you know, the TV research I've done, you know, that just continues in the mid-century period with women being responsible for telelabor, doing the labor around television, you know. Um, so, and yeah, I, I do think, you know, and this is very obvious to people now, but why are voices like Alexa coded as white and feminine and, and right? Um, there, there were just, you know, electronic servants that were made to be feminized and racialized too. Yes. On my Google Maps application for my telephone, I like a a woman who lectures me and tries to order me around. There's a great word for it in Spanish, which can be used in either a masculine form or a feminine form, which is mandona or mandon. We don't really have one in English. Like Madonna? (laughs) <laughs> no, it's it's M-A-N-D-O-N, one word for the male form and with an A on the end for the female form. It, we don't really have a word in English. Bossy boots would be the closest equivalent, but it's quite informal. Anyway, this woman's voice is... And that's probably British because I've never heard of that. Well, she's speaking in Spanish. It's the Spanish. Uh, bossy boots. There's another, there's another, it's the term bossy boots. Oh, is that British? Yeah, I don't know what, what it would be in American English. But a person who tells everybody else what to do. Or it would be insulting. Let's say that the universal insult. (laughs) And there's another voice you can get, which is seductive, also female, same woman, I think, or composite of different women's voices. But to sound as though, honey, would you just turn left here, please? You know, like that. It's but I I, fortunately have never found it. So I just get the bossy boots. That's like the Scarlett Johansson and her, right? So in terms of this surveillance issue, Prof, one of the things that I've often found with students is that they're inculcated with a fear of state surveillance, Mm -hmm. but not so much corporate or familial surveillance. And I wondered if you had a comment on that. I know. I've been teaching graduate students for the last well, I guess I did teach undergrads the year before that. So I hate making huge generalizations, but I think my graduate students aren't, you know, they're just as worried about corporate. But I think when I teach this stuff to undergrads, there was this shift of, 
you know, like say our generation, like was really like anti-advertising and, you know, anti-anything capital, right? And you teach advertising and now it's like, oh, how can I do that? How can I get that skill set? And it's not because they're greedy capitalists, but because they've kind of got this idea that it's giving them choices and information. And, you know, that would be the fault of the, you know, the older culture, which has taught them the neoliberal Bible that... You know, all of these things are giving them choices because they will find out probably later that a lot of those choices aren't very good ones. So for them, it's not about the glamour of Mad Men or North by Northwest of the ad man. It's survival. It's looking at. No, but it's interesting you brought up Mad Men because I had written this little essay on Mad Men. and a lot of it was based on my students in my class. And when I'd show it, you know, I kind of realized they were, that generation wasn't being nostalgic, say like my generation for the, you know, we're supposed to watch it through the lens of baby boom, and right? But they were thinking about it in terms of the future. So it was this weird futuristic nostalgia because they were like, I want to go to Manhattan and have, you know, you know, cocktails and, you know, have this great job. And, you know, that, you know, that was... Their idea. So it really interested me that it was really appealing to them in terms of like their future. Wow. The Madison Avenue ad man is the glamorous male subject. Yeah. Of the, of yeah the so the women in the class, you know, say like, oh, we wish men were dressed in suits like that. And, you know, like it, <laughs> it didn't matter what Don Draper was supposed to be or how, you know, an old person like me were would read him. Right. But. Yeah. What was your take in in your essay? I called the essay post-feminist nostalgia for the future or something like that. And it was this kind of take about a kind of, you know, new post-feminist idea in Mad Men that it was really about, you know, charting a future. And I, I looked at some of their websites and stuff, and you could see that they were trying to make it part of the contemporary culture for the younger generation and not so much just, you know, um, restorative nostalgia for us. And yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, you know, like nostalgia can sometimes serve critical functions and, you know, they're comparing the past to the future and the present and they're thinking historically. So I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily, but I just thought it was an interesting difference from what I would have expected. I was thinking they would think, oh, that's, you know, let's critique this, you know, representation of the 50s. And instead they were like, no, that that's me, <laughs> right? Instead they were like, oh, no, we could use this for the present. So interesting. And yeah. The term post-feminist, I guess I read and heard a lot about five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but I'm not reading it so much now. Uh, Well, because I think like, you know, the waves have continued and, you know, feminism isn't a dirty word anymore in the academy. I I don't know. I guess it's different, different places. Um, But, um, you know, it, it, at least in the left wing account, it doesn't have, you know, the students don't feel like it's, you know, loaded with the same things they thought maybe during the height of post-feminism, like the 90s or something. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that more students are, you know, Me Too and all the rest of what's happened. I was going to ask you about that and whether that's a big deal for your students and those perhaps because you're teaching in a 
in a, in a field that includes media production and yeah. as well as critical and historical analysis. Is that something that you think has had an impact on the the sort of funnel, if I can use that term, of folks from distinguished colleges into Hollywood or New York, film, television, whatever it might be? Yeah, in a circle, I was wondering if we would discuss this because I do think that film production has responded in some ways to the, I mean, if we could take credit for it, (laughs) to, you know, the kind of cultural studies critique that went on for many, many years, you know, and I think you see that like in the Barbie movie and elsewhere, like elements of what we've been teaching. Um, And I'm not saying like they read my book or your book. I'm just saying like it's infiltrated the culture and at least, you know, like in a way that I think is good. You know, that's great. I have to ask you about the Barbie film. It wasn't actually on the agenda because you're one of the world's experts (laughs) on Barbie. So I want to take you back to being a little girl. Was Barbie perhaps part of Little Lynn? Oh, oh, definitely. Because I was like right in that generation. My sister was in the jet, like was five years older and got the first Barbie. And I was terribly jealous, you know. So some of it has to do with sibling rivalry. Like, why didn't I have a Barbie? You know, I was too young. Um, but then I got my Barbie, but mine was a bubble cut and she had the ponytail. So it was better. You know, so I just went on and on like that. But I liked Barbie as a child, or let's say I remember liking Barbie as a mm-hmm. child. Because of her portability, like I hated baby dolls, right? And I hated the idea, you know, that I always had to get a baby doll for, you know, my birthday or something. So Barbies, you could carry in a case, like a little business person and, you know, walk around the neighborhood and knock on someone's door and say, hey, you want to play Barbies? And so I think it was also about like girlhood mobility, you know? Yes. Well, and in those days, of course, Barbie was very much probably white and blonde only was that the case i'm sorry what did you say the the barbie dolls in those yeah. initial iterations were blonde and white only i think right or they no? had they had different color hair red brown guys <laughs> yeah, because they were like marketing them so you'd bought more than one there wasn't a black one until um i think the first one was 68 um and there was a black Barbie and a Julia doll and that came out around the TV show uh, Julia, but it was a Barbie doll body, you know. Um, yes, Julia, was that the first sitcom yeah. with, a, with a black female star? Yeah. Diane Carroll, yeah. On and so, you know, there was this whole, and it was really aimed at children, you know, so um, Mattel sponsored it and then produced, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So did you have a moment when you grew out of Barbies or are you still waiting for that moment? I think, you know, probably when I was a teenager, I didn't care about them that much. But I know when, I mean, this is a common Barbie story when your parents sell your house and throw your Barbies away. And it's just so traumatic when you realize all your Barbies are gone. So then as an adult, you know, I actually got into them again when I lived in Madison and became friends with this comic book store owner. And she um, collected Barbies and so I started collecting them too and it just so happened that the major Barbie collector group um, was in Wisconsin 
and so I had I that's when I wrote about Barbie dolls and yeah. went to all these conventions. And, yeah. So when the film came along last year, what were you expecting, and what did you make of it? What did you think of it then? Well, I loved it, you know, and, and like I really did. And I, you know, obviously there were things about it that having written about some of this stuff before that, you know, like Barbie, you know, that that the collectors of Barbie always thought she was a feminist and would point to that, right? And that um, the collector's culture around Barbie was always interesting to me because it was gay men and women in and and like women who you would think were kind of right wing women. So it was just an interesting mix around a, mater- a piece of material culture that everybody loved. So I was really interested in that. And then Mattel, of course, started marketing like Earring Ken to gay men. And there was a whole Barbie liberation organization around liberating Barbie from, you know, femininity and, um, you know, gender switching the dolls. So putting male voice boxes in the female Barbie. And this was in the 90s. So I kind of, that was the one thing that bugged me a little because I, and that's just like my own vanity because people are like, knew that already and that's not news to me. But, you know, um, but I was, I just really loved it. I thought it was fun. I, you know, some of it, you know, seemed a bit like, you know, um, feminist politics, you know, delivered in, I, you know, a way that a mass audience would all love. And I think that's good, you know, so, I, you know, and I love the music. I just really liked it. I liked all the pink. So, <laughs> you know, so I'm a big fan of it. And I was very mad at the Golden Globes that they, you know, gave it the booby prize of best box office rather than anything else. Yes, Oppenheimer and others are yeah. perhaps generically more of award course. candy, right? Yeah. Have you seen Oppenheimer? I, I... No, I haven't. I've, I've only seen Barbie amongst of Did you like Barbie? I did. Um, after the first five minutes, I thought, this is clever and I get it, but it's going to become boring. But it yeah. didn't. It didn't. I, I absolutely loved it, actually. Uh, yeah. I went on a date that didn't work out, but <laughs> the best part of the date was the two hours or however long in the scene. Yeah, it's definitely pleasurable. So, <laughs> and, and you know, I think it makes a good point in a way that yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's great. She's a fantastic director, uh-huh. fantastic actor. Yeah, great. So, we've been speaking a bit about domesticity, and one of the areas in which you've made an extraordinary contribution, Prof, is in the domain of television. And you had a book that came out uh, maybe a year and a half ago. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the book is called TV Snapshots, and it's based on, I started collecting snapshots of people posing with their TV sets. And the first one I had was actually my own, which I was like, uh, you know, five or six posing in front of my TV set. And, you know, my father was a TV repairman, so it's very meaningful to me. So That was a big, big profession, wasn't yeah. it? A really big profession. It was one of those things that a lot of returning GIs got into. That's what he was. Yeah, he was in right. the radio. Yeah. Right. You know, so that's exactly it. 
So, you know, it had like multiple levels of meaning to me. And when I wrote my first book, Make Room for TV, I really wanted to have a chapter. I thought, oh, aren't there more of these snapshots? If there's one of me, probably other people took them. But, you know, at that point, I never could find any. And it was really the Internet um, and when television became like literally for the garbage disposal, right, like old TV consoles, um, that pictures of television started having collector's value. So I found them at vintage stores and tons of them on eBay and other online sites, people selling, you know, pictures of people posting with TV. So I was able to collect about 5,000 of them. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, we just took too many years. Um, and then, you know, I was trying to draw uh questions about what it meant to live with television and why it is people wanted to take pictures of themselves with the set, you know, and what those pictures can tell us about the way people kind of lived with television in that period. And what do you think it was that drew people? Well, there's various things. One was, you know, um, rather than, I mean, the, the first insight is rather than like watching TV, you posed in front of it. So a basic cultural studies insight of, you know, how do people use this rather than how are they being told to use it? Because all the ads would show people watching it, but instead people wanted to see themselves in front of it. And, you know, I think it's not, I definitely think it's not just conspicuous consumption because that's like the first thing you think they're showing off their TV, but actually they were doing all sorts of things in front of the TV from, they would, you know, there are all of these snapshots of kids and adults performing on instruments in front of TV. So they're the performer rather than watching the performance. And I was really interested in, into the racial dynamics of that because like for, you know, I was kind of taking bell hooks idea that you know the camera the ordinary but camera um snapchat camera was a way um uh, black people could speak back to mass culture by taking pictures of themselves and so you know during this period there's so many racist <laughs> all white programs and stuff but instead you saw a lot of like black families performing in front of the tv they're posing or literally playing instruments um, listening, you know, showing their record albums, you know, and white people too. But I was interested in the different things it afforded across races and genders. Then there's, you know, lots of ones of women in outfits dressing up. And you could see it's a ritual kind of thing because I found multiple like sets of snapshots in which women like pose one, like in 19... 19- 57 in my black and white dress and then in 1967 in my prom dress you know they always it's the same person going in front of the tv so I found these really interesting dynamics about using it as a ritual kind of liminal space between the home and going out because it was always going out outfits you know like I'm going here or they'd write it on the back uh, on the back of the thing on my way to a wedding or you know that kind of thing and Um, when did this stop Yeah, it hasn't actually stopped. I was just going to say the most surprising photos I found were the ones where women were posing nude, um, pinups. And there's a lot of those. Um, So, um, and there's also ones of men. Uh, So less that I found, but hard to say. Um, So I was really surprised about that. And I was thinking, you know, about the way we always think TV was so wholesome and just all in the family. 
um, because it was censored and, you know, regulated by the government and, you know, it was unlike film where you could have stag films when film, you know, but there was actually obviously some kind of sexual culture going around um, the televisions. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> yeah. So that was really interesting. So there was a chapter on that. Um, yeah. But you asked me something. I'm sorry. No, I haven't read the book. So, you know, I, whereas your other books I have read, hence my ignorance. Now, I was wondering about, uh, when I asked you how how and why did it stop, and you're saying it it actually keeps going in a certain sense. It it does, and I created a website with the book, so if you just want to see some of the photos, you can go to the website, um, which is tvalbum.com. But the, the... and they do go into the 80s for sure. And I even have some that people sent in from the 90s. I mean, it becomes less. It's residual, you know. Um, but it. I stopped in 77 because of copyright laws. I only allowed to reproduce. Oh. Yeah. But it doesn't actually just stop at a deadline. It's most popular, though, I would say, in, in the 50s to the 70s. And. That's when I guess there are, we're talking about the United States principally, at least here, there is a, a set of breakthroughs in these technologies. They get yeah. bigger, they include color and so on, and sometimes speaker systems are beginning as well. Yes, I used to be. Do you get the sense that there's another kind of technologies or set of technologies that have displaced the television in domestic photography? Yeah, well, you do see increasingly, you know, the TV will be paired with the video cassette. So you see that kind of transition, you know. And in the book, I talk about the way, you know, there were these things that were like transitional technologies where they were television sets, but they were sold. I forget which company sold them. Um, But you could put your own family slides inside the TV set. This is before camcorders, right? So, like, it's moving towards the camcorder. so it, it is really interesting from that perspective. And I should say, back to the American focus, it's global. Um, so I focused on the U.S. ones, although there are some international ones in the book, um, mostly because I was having trouble figuring out, like, cultural specificity things. But there's a lot. Somebody else collected a lot from China um, in the 80s. They're all over the place, Egypt. France, um, England, Australia, you know, um, I didn't find any from Spain. Yes, that's interesting. I must ask people about that. Um, It might just be that they weren't on eBay or weren't in vintage stores or, you know. Apart from the nudity, was there anything else you encountered that surprised you? Yeah, the performances in front of the set, the ritual aspects, like a lot of it surprised me because at first you just think, oh, they're cute sentimental family snapshots and they're showing off their new TV and their kid. But it was way more than that. And also the other surprise is that they, um, there's a lot of trick shots where people emptied out their TV sets and climbed in and then took a picture of themselves inside the TV set. So all of these uses that, you know, range from just family portraiture to the uncanny, like the trick shots, um, to pornography, um, really, to me, suggested a whole kind of set of things we never thought about in terms of, you know, what television meant to people during this period and how they kind of 
really told their own stories with this domestic device through the, you know, um, Snapchat cameras. Speaking of what television meant in those days, as I said to you before we started recording, I'm always looking for good answers to when people tell me, especially people my age, actually, television doesn't matter anymore. My children don't watch it or my grandchildren don't watch it. It's insignificant. It's been surpassed and so on. And I'm sure you get similar things launched at you or maybe you think them too. So I wondered if if you could engage with that discourse. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually writing something about that. So, but yeah, like in in classes at first, teaching TV history became more and more frightening to me because I felt like the old lady with the old TV set and they're like, who cares? Um, But they really do like it. But, you know, I find that um, the initial reaction is it's so alien and so different and it is different in certain ways, but, you know, I don't think they don't think it doesn't matter once they thought about it more. But um, but I think that, you know, I personally think that's, you know, upsetting. It's always been the fate of the TV scholar, even before TV was not what it is now, right? Um, that TV was a low form, that why bother studying it? It's just crap or you know or you know it's just insignificant why are you doing that to now oh it's been surpassed by this other technology we would never say that about film you know I mean there's a huge and you know I I think great um silent film scholarship going on and we never say oh well silent film who needs that that's been surpassed right um so I think it has to do with larger cultural prejudices around television period but in terms of what's going on now, and I want to hear your thoughts, but I guess in terms of what's going on now, it's so interesting how all the streaming stuff is returning to old paradigms of television, liveness, right? Um, like HBO calling itself Max and now is saying that they're going to focus on live news and sports because they realize their old brand isn't getting subscribers, right? Um, and um advertising which we've all seen like to sustain it they have to go back to it so the paradigms i think the big change is temporalities i don't know what you think because the flow thing is gone yes although of course now you're getting apple tv and amazon and so on releasing one episode a week on a given day yeah yeah, that's scheduled. Yeah, and you can certainly watch it when you want, but the days of saying, "Well, here are fifteen episodes, and you can watch yeah. them lying in bed with the flu," are are gone. Other than with things that have already gone through that iteration. And yeah, the other thing is, I would say, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just agreeing with you. It is interesting because I think there's something that is like like having a schedule with TV is really important in some ways. And I don't know if that's just for people that lived with the old paradigm and like to, like me, like to, cause I always like to have it a schedule, you know, it's coming out Monday, it's coming. Or if that's just pleasurable period. Well, I've suddenly started liking the fact that the shows I've been following are on, one's on a Wednesday, one's on a Friday, at least here in 
in Madrid. I, I'm enjoying that. So you may be right. The other thing I'd say with reference to advertising is that you can really see how things are now being cut for when they're either going to go out on a, on a cheaper advertising driven stream or when they're going to be sold to broadcast television. So I've, I've noticed in the last couple of seasons of the Bosch series, based on the Michael Connolly novels oh. on Amazon, that okay. the really high production values have actually gone a bit because it's been cut as if it was CSI, oh. uh, which I don't think is, I don't think any of those shows are particularly well made. Not that the people oh. making them are no good, but the production pressures to include absurd breaks for commercials are such oh. that you get less development of all sorts of scenery, character, and so on. Yeah. This is my perception anyway. And suddenly there'll be a, a dark screen for no good reason. There's no proper match on action or match on sound. It's very clear to me that's where the commercial is going to be inserted. I, think there, I wonder, because I know what you're talking about, but sometimes I wonder, like, if they're just like, if they weren't made for commercials and they've decided to just put commercials in and put that dark screen, you know what I mean? Because it seems like a jolting break, like... It's it's unclear to me, like, well, how... I mean, the other thing is, you know, I grew up with commercial television in Britain being regulated in such a way that there was one commercial channel that was national, although it had regional elements. And when it had a drama or a comedy, there would be a, a screenshot that said, end of part one, and then oh. you'd have the commercials, and then you'd have the second half, and then more commercials. So there was only one break for commercials, basically. Uh, and yeah. that was really clearly signaled, not unlike what it used to be, uh, what used to be the case in cinemas, where there would be a break. I, I say it was an long film in, in um, Gone with the Wind or Dr. Zhivago would be two that I can remember yeah. where there were breaks during releases. And, you know, sometimes there might be two even, a bit like if you were at the opera or the theatre live, and they would be... Some... And how long were the breaks? In the case of ITV, the commercial television station, I'm thinking four or five minutes. I remember going to see Gone with the Wind when I was a teenager, when it was re-released, and I think there were two breaks of maybe five minutes and ten minutes, but I'm not, you know, I could be flawed in my I remember mind. that, too, with those kind of movies. Yeah, 2001, 2001 as well. Definitely um, Lawrence of Arabia. That's one that I remember. Yeah, yeah. They don't do that now. There's just like these four-hour films, like Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's like, I can't watch that. I can't keep going. The other thing I thought I think of when people tell me it's all over is an expression that I attribute to Horace Newcomb, which is that, Television is a warehouse of culture that mm. it managed to bring together all previous cultural forms from music around the piano for families with yeah. sheet in descriptions of music and words and so on through to radio drama that it had sort of incorporated all of those things and housed them, rehoused them. And it seems to me that it's still doing that. But there is this interesting interplay with other screens, like the computer screen. So starting, I guess, in my memory with ESPN, but also things like teletext, beginning to have numerous things going on on the screen, apart yeah. from the diegesis. Right, that, has, that have nothing to do with what people are talking about 
or the action being portrayed. Yeah. Something that I, I, I've never liked. But anyway, yeah. television increasingly does that. But also a lot of things that are made for telephones or for tablets or for computers or televisions look a lot like television to me. Yeah, well, they do. This is just kind of live action or animated action. And yeah, and I guess what you're saying too is like, you know, you just pay attention differently to television now because of, you know, I mean, I don't know if you do, but I find myself in that bad habit of constantly like playing a game while I watch TV or, <laughs> or even a quality movie, you know? And right. I, I just think, what, what just happened? And like, why am I doing this? But there's just something about the attention economy now that is really different. Yeah, sure. And I mean, there are all our colleagues who ban cell phones from class. Do you? Uh, no. I, it's, I, I sort of want to sometimes, but I'm constitutionally incapable of wagging a finger at students for looking at a screen. Like, read too much Foucault, can't discipline anybody. <laughs> right. And the other thing, what I do is walk around so that they know that I'm yeah. staring. And yeah. what's interesting, you know, I had a job for, uh, you know, I don't have a proper job anymore, and so I go wherever I can find work. I had 18 months at a, a very expensive private university in the south of the United States. Oh. And the boys were gambling on football on oh. their phones, and the girls were looking at influencers with reference to fashion and makeup. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, okay, that that's what they're doing. So I tried to do classes as much as possible on influencers and gambling on sports. That's Although the classes were numerically dominated by girls rather than boys. They were still looking at them. Yeah, they just want to look at They rather look at They just saw I, straight well, through me. I know. <laughs> well, in one of my classes, because I think a bunch of the – girls in the class were looking at shoes on like Zappos or something, you know, and I kind of knew that. And I thought, I just said to them, you know what, while I'm teaching, I'm going to go buy shoes too. And I put the Zappos thing and said, I should buy. <laughs> I thought it was fun. Didn't stop any of the action. It was just stand so this, this is because we've become those pathetic elderly <laughs> academics who try to be down with the students and they just they oh, it's such yeah. a mistake. It's such a mistake. <laughs> really, now I just say I'm old, you know. No, but I have tried to sort of get to find a way to get them to think through the issues I want to raise with reference yeah. to what are their interests. I guess that that is worth doing. I think, but I'm not well, sure I found the way to do it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it is really, I mean, that, but that, I bet that's not just because of new media or what they bring into class. Cause I always think, well, when I went to class, half the time I would doodle and write notes to my friends. I wasn't really paying attention. And, you know, I learned stuff anyway somehow. So maybe it's just not a problem. Well, it's interesting at the, this unnamed university <laughs> in deep south, their essays were terrific. Now, that's partly because they had a lot of cultural capital going in. You know, they had gone to fancy yeah. schools in LA and New York. Yeah. Right. But they had actually listened to something, maybe not me. Or read or, yeah, like. <laughs> or read, whatever it was. They knew a lot more than I imagined they possibly could. 
Yeah, I think that's true. Like we tend to, you know, it, it hurts our feelings not to be listened to. But on the other hand, if you have a good syllabus and there's enough of what they're listening to and they're getting something out of it, it's still a valuable experience for them. I think so. You know, one of the interesting things, I'm talking more than I should, but it's an interesting dialogue we're having, at least for me. I looked at the political economy of influencers uh, in the U.S. because it's very different in the U.S. from here in Europe, where most of the influencers are people who are always who are already famous. You know, they're football players or actors, whereas in the United States, they're people you've never heard of. Right. I didn't realize that. That I thought they were always people you never heard of everywhere. So did I. And then I came here. It's the same in Latin America. They're all these incredibly famous football players who are big influencers. Anyway. In the U.S., it won't surprise you to know that 85% of the top influencers are female, right? We sort of expect that. And they get paid nothing compared to the guys. Nothing. There's an incredible differential in earnings. So I thought, well, they'll be interested in this. So I got all the data I could, some of which is put together by a couple of feminist interest groups, you know, amongst influencers who basically gone around and asked all the guys, how much do you get paid and worked out there's a huge differential. Um, I don't know why I'm surprised, but yeah. No, exactly. I I think, I don't know if it's still the case. I think it used to be the case in pornographic film too. Anyway, I, I, I tell them this and the girls would shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, that's what life's like. You know, dudes are bastards. And it's, it's quite demoralizing. You know, that's the way of the world. Yeah, that is. The response I tended to get. I mean, yeah, that that is. I guess a lot of people are feeling a little hopeless right now, frankly, you know. One of the other, you know, this was also when Roe v. Wade was overturned. Yeah, like it's just been so difficult. This was so poignant, so meaningful for these young women. I mean, as it is for all women and many men. So poignant, so powerful, so painful. And they talked about it when you walked around campus, when you were in any line for the bus or to buy something in the store. These girls, when there are no boys in their group, that's all they were talking about. Well, it really is like, you know, such a retrograde. It's like a shock, you know, like. And for if you're young and a woman, it's just completely devastating, especially if you live somewhere where it's impossible to get an abortion. Well, and this was one of the things. They were all planning where they would go. Yeah. Because yeah. it was going to be illegal where we were. So, Prof, we've we've got about five minutes left, and I wanted to ask you one question and then throw it over to you to add anything that you wanted okay. to. So my first question is sort of a stupid one, but imagine I'm a geophysicist or a biochemist considering you for a hot promotion, and I'm asking you, Professor Spiegel, how do you find shit out? How do you know these things? <laughs> That's a great question, Toby. <laughs> I don't know. I like I like I kind of focus on little things and then think, but that's interesting. And it doesn't seem like a big deal, but maybe it's worth pursuing, like the snapshots, you know, like it seems so obvious, but maybe it's worth pursuing more or like television in people's houses, you know. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole archival apparatus after that, since I mostly write histories. But 
but I, yeah, like where does the curiosity come from is, is a really great question, you know, and it's different for different projects, but. Um, but there's something there about little things, little things in material culture that have lots of stories and histories loaded into them. Is that right? Yeah, and I'm interested in how other people would experience them. So it's not just like me, but like, oh, why did they do that? Or how do they feel about that? And, I, you know, I've done some maybe audience things, but it's often more historical. So I'm thinking like the challenge is how did people in the past experience this? We'll never know. But that's to me really interesting question to ask when you don't know and then you try to answer it speculatively, you know, like, so... Yeah, I would I would say usually it comes from something that seems like it's probably not mat doesn't matter. It's very everyday, and yet mm. it's persistent, and it seems like it's worth pursuing in a way that you know. Because I never really write big histories, but of grand things. And lastly, Prof, if there's something you'd like to add to or subtract from, even the topics that <laughs> what did I say that? I'm sure I said a lot of stupid things, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, what are you working on? Yes. If you're allowed to talk about yourself. Yes, of course. I love to do that. No, I'm, um, I have a book coming out called Why Journalism, which oh. will appear in a couple of months, which has quite a lot about television in it. And just looking quite at. What about television? Um, well, yes. News, but also sports. So it's mostly news and sports uh, in in terms of the t the TV stuff, but also quite a bit about technology. Uh, and after that, I've got I'm trying to think about how to write a book called Making Up People or Inventing People. Maybe Inventing People, which is how are people invented? <laughs> like um, explain. So that's everything from intervening in utero to change the genetic formation oh, okay. Okay. of new AI. Um, also artificial intelligence but you know how would you create an ideal picture in the womb so that he or she doesn't have doesn't need rotator cuff surgery uh, <laughs> how do you make sure you don't have a communist daughter um Exactly. It didn't work with you or me, but you know, <laughs> it went bad. Uh, how do I how do I get a, a blonde child with blue eyes? You know, all these sorts of things, but not just in so you just kind of like planned eugenics now with technology. Yes, exactly, and the new eugenics, the new so called liberal eugenics, and what's yeah, uh, so that's it's a great title too. You should use inventing people. It's really provocative and interesting. Yeah. So, Prof, I, I want to thank you very, very much for being with us. It was It's yeah, always thanks. fantastic to speak to you, to read yeah. your work. I hope I see you in person sometime. <laughs> thank you.